Good morning, guys. Thanks, Ken, for the announcements. Like you said, for Awaken, we're going to be worshiping the one true God, and that's our message today. Uh, real quick, just uh, some trivia for you guys. Um, who in the Bible was the smartest person besides Solomon? Jesus. In the Old Testament. <laughs> Abraham, because he knew a lot. <laughs> Hope you guys have your coffee this morning. You need a little wake up. Uh, speaking of coffee, how does Moses make his coffee every morning? Right on, he brews it. All right, all right. Laughter is the best remedy for a sad heart, so don't call me a hero, but I'm doing my best. All right, so last time I was up here, we talked about uh, kind of my testimony growing up, uh, how I had lots of questions about uh, why is the Bible the true word of God? Uh, why is Jesus the only way to heaven? Are there other faiths out there? Are there other paths? And I challenged myself with these questions, and I went on a long search, uh, researching other world religions, putting them through a bunch of different tests. And what I came to realize was not only was Christianity uh, the one that came out on top, it was the only one that was left standing, the only one that could stand these tests. So I give you guys 10 evidences, plus a bonus one last time, of why Christianity is true. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about other world religions. Uh, it's not going to be an exhaustive study. I'm not going to go in depth on all these. So if you feel like I might have missed something or I might have painted with too broad of a stroke, that's exactly what I'm doing. Uh, so just a very, very quick, brief summary of these religions and then why Christianity is different from those. So there can only be one truth. John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And Acts 4.12 also emphasizes this, that there is no one else with the power to save. No one else that God has given authority for salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So those are the principles that we share as Christians. We have to stick to that truth. Jesus is the only way, only truth, only life. No one can get to heaven except through him. There's no other name under heaven by which men like us can be saved. So that's a hard truth for Christians to grasp, especially when you have friends with other faiths uh, or friends who are atheists, friends who are agnostic, friends who just don't believe in Jesus, they don't believe in all that Bible stuff. How do we confront them and how do we approach this truth in a loving but firm way? So that's what we'll talk about today. If you guys uh, don't know, there are about 4,300 religions in the world, but you can narrow this down to about 12 major world religions, which make up about 97% of the world's population. So you might have heard of some of these, you might not have, but Christianity, that's us. Hinduism, Taoism, Baha'i, Zoroastrianism, Confucianism, Jainism, Shinto, Buddhism, Judaism, Sikhism, and Islam. And lucky for us, we're not going to focus on all these 12. We'll focus on just five of the world's major religions. And we can even break these down a little bit further into the Indian, or what we sometimes call Eastern religions, uh, which is Hinduism and Buddhism, and then the Abrahamic faiths, the Middle Eastern religions, which is Judaism, and from that branched Islam and Christianity. So what are these religions? What do they believe in? What is their method of salvation? How do they get to heaven? Uh, we'll talk about a little bit of that. 
Um, and if you don't think this is true, I'm also going to throw atheism in there as a religion, because I do think atheism is a faith system. It is a system that puts its belief in something that cannot be proven, something that cannot be tested, uh, something that uh, we can't go back in time and watch the Big Bang, we can't go back in time and watch macroevolution. It's a theory, and therefore it is a faith system. So, before we get into the religious arguments, I want to sort of have arguments over why God exists in the first place. So, for the atheist, one of my favorites is the moral arguments. Uh, lots of people that believe in the Big Bang, they believe that we're just space dust, clashing with space dust, that made this universe and eventually made life on Earth and humans. Uh, they tend to believe that morality is relative, truth is relative, uh, we're just living the best we can, doing uh, all we can to be remembered in this life. And so if they claim a sense of morality, they claim that certain things are unjust for everyone at all times, everywhere. Things like you should not kill, you should not steal, uh, you should not rape, you should not lie. These things are absolute truths that even the atheist would cling to and say that, yeah, you can't break those rules. But in order for there to be an absolute truth, there has to be an absolute truth giver. In order for there to be absolute morality, there has to be an absolute being that justifies and decrees that morality for us. So that's one of my favorite arguments for there being a God. Because if there is no God, then truth really is relative. You guys can do whatever you want. Uh, no hold bars. Is that the expression? There's no rules for us. And that would lead to a world of anarchy. There would be no government that could stand under that rule, under that leadership. So all throughout history, Satan has been twisting the word of God ever since the beginning of time, since uh, the Garden of Eden when God said, uh, when Satan said, did God really say this? Did God really tell you you can't eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden of knowledge of good and evil? Did God really tell you that you would die in that day? And Satan has been challenging man all throughout time with that question. And so a lot of the world's religions have been initiated um, and manipulated by Satan. Uh, so all the way back to the Canaanite gods, the Egyptian gods, uh, the Amorite, Philistine, Babylonian, Assyrian, Persian, Greek, Roman, all these gods, I believe, have been impacted and manipulated by Satan throughout time. And 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20 talks a little bit about this. Paul's talking about food sacrificed to idols and how we as Christians are free to eat of it, but it's not necessarily a good thing. And he says, what do I imply then? That this food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, obviously not. I imply that what pagan, pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So that's pretty heavy. The Bible talks about all these pagan gods, all these false idols, anyone that isn't the one true God, Yahweh. It isn't just an inanimate object. It isn't just something that you're worshiping uh, that means nothing. The idol itself means nothing, but behind that idol, Paul is saying that you are worshiping demons. You're worshiping a doctrine of demons. And Satan is that power behind it. Uh, so our main text for today, you guys can read along in your notes or it'll be on the screen. Uh, John three sixteen through 21. I think most of us know John three sixteen, right? We've heard it. Uh, we're going to keep reading through this entire section. 
So John chapter 3, starting at verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. To verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So that's our main text today, uh, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But real quick, uh, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you uh, that you have orchestrated uh, the Bible, that you've ordained all of history, and that all the law, all the prophets point to you, point to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you that you have presented us a way to heaven. You've made a way where there was no way. We know that we are sinful, uh, wicked beings, and we could not possibly get to heaven on our own Morality, we could not get to heaven on our own goodness, our own righteousness, but only through faith in Christ and his work on the cross do we come to the do we come to salvation in your name. And in Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. All right. So we're gonna cover five of the world's major religions, including atheism. So A in your notes, if you're following along, you can pull up your notes on the email bulletin that was sent out, or you can look in your YouTube or Facebook description if you're watching online. So A in your notes is five major problems. So there are five major problems with other world religions, and we are going to look at each one. So back to verse 18, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So by not believing in Jesus, you are condemning yourself. By believing in Jesus, you are not condemned. That is the ultimatum the Bible offers. You either accept Christ or you reject Christ. Those are your two options. So number one we're going to look at is atheism. So in atheism, salvation is by uh, a sense of legacy. Uh, Atheists don't believe in heaven. They normally don't believe in afterlife, although sometimes they mix reincarnation in there. Atheists, their version of heaven is legacy, what you leave behind. So you live a good life and your family remembers you. Maybe the world remembers you. Your name is passed on throughout history. That is the closest thing you can get to salvation, the closest thing you can get to a paradise. And the way to do this is through good works. You live a good and moral and just life, And by doing so, you can leave a good legacy behind. So to atheism, their scripture is scientism. Scientism is the belief that science can answer all questions in life. Uh, And if you guys don't know, science itself uh, is a branch of knowledge that requires repetition of experiments to prove a hypothesis. Science is not declaring theories as truth that cannot be tested based on experiment. But scientism 
believes that everything in science can answer all questions about life. And so, for the atheists, they believe in macroevolution and the Big Bang Theory. That this world was started by chance uh, some 14-odd billion years ago. And we came from just an explosion, space dust colliding with space dust, and eventually human beings came on the scene. And so there's no one deciding what's right and wrong, no one telling us what we should do, what the purpose of life is, that's for us to decide. And for the atheist, that sounds good, because we don't like to be told what to do, we don't like to be told how to live our life, we want to do what we want to do. But we have a sense of morality, and we want to uphold some level of justice. So for the atheist, they say there is no God. For Jesus, they say he did not exist, or perhaps he was just a good teacher. But he was not a prophet, and he was not God. So the atheist says there is no God. Psalm 14, 1 and 3, as well as Psalm 53, 1 and 3, are two of the same passage that's repeated in the book of Psalms. And it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Does that passage sound familiar to you guys? Anywhere else in the Bible you can remember hearing that? There is none who does good, none who does good no, not one. Romans. Yes, yes, Romans 3.10. Paul quotes both of these passages saying that there is none who does good, all have sinned, all have fallen away, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So for the atheist that says there is no God, the Bible says only a fool says in his heart there is no God. And this is not to be mean, this is not to slander uh, or hate the atheist. It's just there is an insurmountable evidence for God's existence. There is an insurmountable evidence for the Bible's historical scientific um, accuracy, and to doubt that and to doubt God's existence is a little bit foolish, in my opinion. So the second major problem for Hinduism, salvation is by what's called moksha, uh, which is a freeing of yourself from this world, from this cycle of rebirth and suffering. And to do that, you follow the four yogas. So there are four yogas. There's karma yoga. You guys probably heard the word karma before. Basically, it's summed up in you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. There is bhakti yoga, which is a devotion to purity. And typically, you follow after a mentor. You follow after someone who's knowledgeable. And a lot of times, this involves chanting meditation, so if you guys can think of someone who's meditating, saying, um, uh, that is bhakti yoga, clearing your head and pursuing purity. There is, uh, I probably can't pronounce this, nana yoga, the path of knowledge. Uh, you can gain knowledge to the point where you become self-aware. You become aware of this endless existence that you are connected to uh, Brahman, uh, that you are connected to all life, and eventually through that knowledge you can free yourself of the cycle of rebirth. There's the Raja Yoga, uh, this ability to control your senses, uh, basically to let go of any kind of stimulation, any kind of pleasure, any kind of worldly uh, things. You let go of those things. You control your senses. 
For the Hindu, their scripture is the Vedas, which is a collection of hymns, philosophies, guidance, uh, and how to live this life. And their God is actually many gods. They believe that there are many different gods out there. It doesn't really matter which one you serve as long as you serve some of them. Some Hindus believe there are 33 gods. Some believe there are 33 million. In the Vedas, it actually says that there are 330 million gods out there. So which one do you serve? Who knows? You pick a couple, go with that. Whichever one you want to serve is who you serve. But all these gods eventually are tied to one god they call Brahman. Brahman is the source of all life, and all the gods splinter from that reality. So Brahman is the one true god in in Hinduism, but also there are 330 million gods that branch from him. So they believe in this aspect of reincarnation. So we talked about karma, the good you do, the bad you do. That impacts how you're reincarnated. And so you might be reincarnated into uh, an animal. You might be reincarnated back into a human. But the good and bad you do impacts your next life. And so your next life, uh, they have caste systems, uh, better or greater degrees of uh, people. And so if you're in an upper caste, it implies that you lived a good life prior to upgrade yourself to this good class. And if you're in a poorer class, it is evidence that you had bad karma. You did bad things to deserve that place. And for Jesus, the Hindu says he was a good teacher, perhaps a holy man. And some think that he's one of these 330 million gods. So the Bible says this in Exodus 20, 3 through 5. You shall, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So for the Hindu, what the Bible says is, you know what, you think there are 330 million gods? The Bible says there's only one, and it is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. You shall not bow down to them. Anything that is in heaven above and the earth beneath, all these little images that they make, these statues they make, God says you shall not worship those images. You shall not worship anything that is not him, for he is a jealous God. So my third major problem is Buddhism. So in Buddhism, there is a guy called Siddhartha Gautama, later called the Buddha. He was born 600 years before Christ came. Uh, So he was alive kind of around the time of Daniel, uh, around the time of the exile uh, in that general time zone. So Buddha, he grew up under Hinduism, but he realized that it was not the way to spiritual enlightenments. He thought it was hocus pocus, and eventually uh, he tried to rid himself of worldly pleasures and live a poor life, and he didn't like that so much. So then he went uh, to meditate by a tree, And when he was meditating by this tree, he realized the truth, um, which was that we need to free ourselves from these worldly pleasures. So he discovered what we call four noble truths. And just take a listen to these because they don't sound very pleasant. The four noble truths are these, that there is pain and suffering in this world. We can all agree to that. Attachment to people and things causes suffering. Not sure if I agree with that one. The suffering will stop when a person can rid him or or herself 
of all of their desires, people, and relationships. And there is a path to extinguishing all these desires. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But this world is full of suffering. We agree with that. The Bible talks about that, that Adam and Eve sinned, and therefore sin brought death into the world, and death spread to all men. So we know there's suffering, but we also believe that relationships, people, community, loving is actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not something you need to reject. Yes, sometimes love can cause hurt. Sometimes people can uh, stab you in the back. Sometimes people can lie to you. They can gossip about you, and that stuff hurts. But ultimately, relationships, people, love, community, those are a good thing given to us by God. So the Buddhist wants to strip all that pleasure away. They want to strip relationships away. They want to separate themselves from this earth so that they can reach their version of salvation, which is called nirvana. So nirvana is when you are finally free of this world, free of your earthly tethers, and you can do this by following what they call the Eightfold Path. And I'm not going to dive into every aspect of this, but basically, you think good things, you say good things, you do good things, you do good. You do good to get good. And by these good works, you can reach this spiritual enlightenment called nirvana. For the Buddhists, their scripture is the sutras. It's a collection of oral traditions passed down from the Buddha. So what he said, what he taught, uh, they eventually shared in an oral tradition and wrote down for us. And so they honor that as their scripture. For their god, uh, they don't necessarily uh, worship a god. They worship a source, a source of all life, a source of all beings, where we all come from, and where we will all eventually go back to. We must return to the source, and we return to the source through reincarnation and eventually reaching nirvana to return to him. The Buddhist says this about Jesus, that he is a good teacher, a holy man, and he was perhaps one of the enlightened ones. Buddha was the first, and perhaps Jesus was as well. So, for the Buddhists, we would challenge reincarnation with this. In Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So, the Bible affirms that there is one death, there's one life, you die once, and then comes judgment. And then for the Christian who puts their faith in Jesus, there is a resurrection from the dead. We are born again in Christ, and we are resurrected with him in the end. But there's only one life you live that counts. You live this life, and then judgment comes. You don't have a second chance after you die. You can't come back. You can't do it a hundred times, a thousand times, a million times, as far as they believe reincarnation goes. You got one shot, one opportunity, and that's how we get to heaven. So the fourth major problem we're going to look at is through Islam. So Islam follows Muhammad, who was born about 600 years after Christ. So we've got the Buddha 600 years before, Muhammad 600 years after. He received revelations from God through the angel Gabriel. And there are about one billion Muslims, Muslims in the world today. And the word Muslim, you'll often hear, is translated to one who submits to the will of Allah. One who submits to the will of Allah. So in a sense, they would say that Jesus was Muslim because he submitted to God's will. And if you submit to God's will, you are Muslim as well. But you have to only believe in Allah, no other gods. Salvation for the Muslim, they believe in heaven, 
just like us, just like the Jew. Uh, different versions of that heaven, sure, but they do believe there's a heaven. And the way you get to heaven is by following the five pillars of Islam and by belief in Muhammad, the prophet whom God sent, and following the Quran. So the five pillars of Islam, very quickly, um, shahada, which means affirmation. You're reciting the creed that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. So you recite that every day. You pray seven times a day towards Mecca, their holy city. Or sorry, five times a day. Towards Mecca, their holy city. Uh, there is zakah, which is almsgiving. You are required to give 2.5% of your income to the poor. 2.5% of your income to the poor. There is siyam, the fast. Uh, so from the month of Ramadan, the ninth month of their lunar calendar, they will fast from dawn till dusk. And then there's al-haji, the pilgrimage. Um, Muslims, at least once in their lifetime, must travel to Mecca unless they have some type of extenuating circumstances where they can't get there. They must get to Mecca once in their lifetime. And this might actually be a good opportunity to start a conversation with a Muslim to say like, oh, have you been to Mecca? Tell me about it. What was it like? What'd you do there? Just a good way to start a conversation with them. So some of these pillars might sound very good to you. You know, you pray five times a day. That sounds good. You give money to the poor. That's something that we agree with. You fast. That's something the Bible talks about. However, by following these pillars, by following these good works, they say that you get to heaven through that, through your obedience, through your submission to God. So the Muslim, their scripture is the Quran, and they also believe in the Bible to some extent, though they believe the Bible has been mistranslated to us. Um, it is not the complete revelation of God. It was given to us as a complete revelation, but men in their uh, ignorance, I should say, uh, have mistranslated the scriptures, and so the true meaning is lost. So the Quran, some of the Bible they believe in. Their God is Allah, and uh, about Jesus, they say that he is a prophet, but he is not God, and he never claimed to be God. Jesus was a great prophet, and he was perfect, and he did uh, he was born of a virgin, but he never died on the cross. So what does the Bible say about this in 1 Corinthians 15? 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14, it says, And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ had been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul makes this very clear that the resurrection is crucial to Christianity. If the resurrection did not happen, we are still dead in our sins. And our whole faith system is worthless. And in fact, if our whole faith system is worthless and Christ is only a hope for this life and not the next life, then we of all people are to be pitied the most. John 8:58, how the Muslim says Jesus is not God. There are many, many, many passages about this. We're just going to look at one. 
John 8, 58, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Now, a lot of Muslims will look at passages like this and say that Jesus didn't say Yahweh. He said, ego imi, which is just, you know, I am. This is who I am. However, if you look at the passage, what did the Jews do as soon as Jesus said this? They picked up stones to stone him because what he said was blasphemy. So the Jews of their day understood that Jesus was claiming deity. He was claiming um, that he has lived since before Abraham, at least, which to them was considered blasphemy, and they picked up stones to kill him. So for us, 2,000 years later, to say, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. He was just saying, like, oh, like, I am. Like, I'm, that's just who I am. No, the Jews believed he was claiming deity, and that's why they picked up stones to kill him. So the fifth major problem, and I want to be very, very careful how I say this, we're going to look at Judaism. So Judaism is what Christianity continues from. So I won't necessarily say that Judaism is wrong in so much as it upholds the Old Testament, it upholds uh, the Old Covenants, it upholds the Scriptures. But as far as a belief system that we are saved by the law, in that degree, in that sense, it is wrong. That is not the way we get to heaven. So Judaism, their salvation, they believe in heaven, just like us. Uh, they believe that the law is the way to get there. So things that they have like the circumcision, the Sabbath, and sacrifices. By following the law of God, by following uh, this old covenant, the old Mosaic law, we can get to heaven through obedience to God. So we share the same scriptures as them. We share the same Old Testament as the Jews from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, we have that in agreement. So we're lo both looking at the same thing. We just have different interpretations of that. And I do believe we have a good reason to interpret it differently. So their God is the same as ours, Yahweh, the one true God of the Old Testament. And their belief in Jesus, they say that he is a good teacher. He might even be a holy man but they do not believe Jesus is God. They do not believe Jesus was the Messiah. So Luke 24, 25 challenges this viewpoint. So the Jews would often say that the Old Testament scripture never talked about the Messiah coming, that he would die, uh, that he would be a, a Christ-like figure like Jesus. They had a different version of the Messiah someone that would take charge and overthrow the Roman government. But yeah, Jesus steps on the scene here in Luke 24, after his resurrection. Verse 25, then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he said, when I was with you before, in verse 44, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms, believe it or not, there are many Messianic prophecies in the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed 
in the authority of his name to all the nations. Beginning in Jerusalem, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent, and you are witnesses to these things. So to the Jew who says the Messiah wasn't really promised to be a person like Jesus, a person who would die, he was supposed to take charge, he was supposed to overthrow the government, he was supposed to live forever. Yet, Jesus says all the prophets, Moses, the law, the book of Psalms, they all point to me. And when he walked them through all these things in the road to Emmaus, I always kind of wondered like what he talked about. How long was that conversation? Did they have time to like ask him about it? I don't know. If you guys look up the, the road to Emmaus, it's actually not that long of a walk, just probably a couple hours. So how much did Jesus talk to them about in those couple hours? All the law, all the prophets, all these foreshadowings of the Christ? It'd be an interesting conversation to listen in on. So one of the greatest passages to turn to for the Jew is Isaiah 53, which we call the suffering servant passage. And we're not going to read the whole chapter. I encourage you guys, if you have time to look it up, uh, just read through Isaiah 53 and ask yourself, who in history has ever met these requirements of the Messiah? Isaiah 53 talks about how he, this Messiah, Christ figure, he took our pain and bore our suffering. We thought he was punished by God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. It talks about how that he would be killed with the wicked and he'd be buried with the rich. And it was the Lord's will to crush him because he would bear our sins and through him we might find forgiveness. So Isaiah 53 is one of the best passages to turn to for someone that doesn't believe the Old Testament predicted the Messiah. It very, very clearly does. Um, and Isaiah 53 is a good, good one to look at. So these five major problems, these five world religions that we looked at, what is their theme? What is their general uh, way of salvation? And if you guys have been following along your notes, you can write next to the, uh, each section, good works, a.k.a. good works. Each method of salvation is basically summed up in do good and get good. So the world's order of salvation, uh, there's a couple steps to salvation that they put in. And they put it in this order, that you must become good by performing good works. You become good by doing good. Then you can build faith in your own abilities and in your own righteousness. And then this righteousness will lead to acceptance. And then that salvation is earned through your merit, through your righteousness, through your goodness. So this is a backwards method of salvation. And the Bible actually flips this the opposite way. The Bible says, first of all, Christ offers you salvation freely through Jesus Christ. And then God fills us with knowledge of Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, the coming judgments. He leads you to repentance. And then we place our faith in Christ who died for us while we are still sinners. So we weren't good first. Christ died for us while we were still bad. He loved first. And because he loved first, we want to love him back. Not in order to repay him, not to like get square with God of he did something good and we have to like make up for that, but we love him because he deserves the glory. We do good works out of the overflow of his goodness that he pours into us as we bear the fruits of the spirit that he puts in us. So none of it's through our own good works, none of it's through our own good merits, it's Christ who does it all. 
So be in your notes. What do we say to those who believe you can work your way to salvation? We say, no way, Jose. This is not possible. If it was up to our good works, our ability to do right, we would all fail. And I'm pretty sure you guys can agree with that. You know, you've messed up a few times. Um, If anything was left to us to get into heaven, this perfect place that needs to be perfect, none of us can get there. Romans 3.10, we talked about, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, no, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. And it also talks about how all have fallen short of the glory of God. So we've all sinned. We're not perfect. Uh, Romans talks about how no one is a 10. So Romans 3.10 is a good way to remember it. No one's a 10. No one's perfect. No one's righteous. No, not one. So we've all sinned, which means if salvation is a method that we have to be perfect to achieve, none of us can achieve that standard. So back to our scriptures, John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So why don't we turn to Christ to forgive us of our sins? Because we're scared of being exposed. We're scared of stepping out into light. We're scared of God saying, yes, you're a sinner. But the thing is, if we overcome that and we step into the light, God doesn't, he doesn't shame us, he doesn't abuse us, he doesn't mock us and belittle us, make us out to be worthless people. He pours love into us. He pours mercy and grace and he forgives us. He calls us righteous as Christ is righteous. He calls us perfect because of Christ's work on the cross. So it seems backwards that you would admit your guilt, but you admit admit your guilt before Christ, and then he calls you perfect through his good works. So in a sense, are we saved by works? No. But in a sense, we are saved by works. We are saved by Christ's work on the cross. We are saved by Christ's work of perfection, his perfect life on earth in obedience to the Father. We are saved through the Holy Spirit's work in us, convicting us of our sin and leading us to repentance in Christ and leading us into all truth and righteousness and the work of Christ to sanctify us in his name that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of his return. But the thing is, all of these works are through Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Not through our works, so that no one boasts, but through God's works. So, are we saved by works? We said, no way, Jose. So how are we saved? And that is point number C in your notes. We are saved by Yahweh. So we're not saved by works, but can we be saved through Christ? And the answer is Yahweh. You can definitely be saved through Christ. Sorry, I had to. So Christianity upholds Yahweh as the one true God. Our method of salvation, uh, we get to heaven by grace through faith. Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. As he talked about on the road to Emmaus, as he talked about throughout his ministry, that the the law speaks about him. He told the uh, the Pharisees at one point when they were questioning him, he said, you know, you guys know the law. 
But if you actually knew the law, you would realize that they talked about me. So these guys who were experts, they read the law and they never realized that Christ is the answer. And the whole Bible's been pointing towards him, towards his coming since the beginning. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not a result of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that none of us may boast. So it's Christ's work on the cross through his grace, through faith in him, that we're saved. So back to our scripture, John three twenty one. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the thief on the cross did this. He came into light. He knew that he was guilty. He knew that he had sinned against God. He was obviously, obviously dying for his sin on the cross, so there was no denying it. But what he knew was that Jesus was innocent. I don't know the rest of what he knew. I assume that he knew that Christ was the Messiah, or at least that Christ uh, was uh, saying that he was a Messiah. He would have heard about those stories. It was kind of the news back in the day. So he might have heard that Jesus, this guy dying next to him, was claiming to be the Messiah. They were saying that he's the king of the Jews, come to save the world. Did he really understand that Christ was fully God? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Did he understand that Christ was part of the Trinity? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Do you understand that Christ was there at the beginning of time? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. What he did understand was the amount of revelation God gave him about Christ, whether he was the Messiah, whether he was fully God, that he was innocent for sure. He put his faith and hope and trust in that. And to that degree of knowledge, Jesus said, I will see you in paradise today. So we're not saved through works. We're not even saved through knowledge. Like, we have essential doctrine in Christianity, an essential doctrine that I will defend till the day I die. And if anyone wants to debate it, I will debate it hard. But even believing in those essential doctrines is not what saves you. It's through Christ, by grace, through faith in him that we're saved. So if God reveals to you that he's a holy trinity and you reject that, then maybe that's something that God will consider. If God reveals to you through the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is God, then for sure you have to believe that. If Christ reveals to you through the Holy Spirit that he was there uh, from eternity past, that he created the world, then yes, you have to believe that. But to the degree of knowledge that God gives you and you placing your faith in that is how we are saved. So Paul is in Athens in Acts 17, starting at verse 22. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, probably can't pronounce that right, uh, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with, the, with this inscription, To the unknown God, so what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. So we don't know too much about this history, uh, about Athens. What, what was this god of the unknown? There's a couple folklores out there that I've looked into. Uh, one was that they had this weird thing that came on, and this god basically did something really powerful, and they weren't sure who it was. They didn't know who to attribute it to, so they just said to the unknown god. I'm not sure what happened historically, but when Paul walked in on them, he saw all of these idols, all of these worship places, and instead of condemning them for that, instead of saying, like, you filthy pagans worshiping these false gods, 
he comes on the scene and says, you know, I've walked along here and I observed that you guys um, are very religious and you observe these objects of your worship. And then he stems from that. He uses that as his, as his bouncing block. From their understanding of worship, their understanding of these gods, he says, look, you have an inscription to the unknown God. I'm going to declare to you who this guy is. This guy is the one true God, Yahweh, who declared things from, from the very beginning. Um, he ordained things where certain people would be, what times they would be in, um, so that you may know that he is the one true God. He has orchestrated the heavens, so you can look up the heavens and see that they declare his glory. And then he moves on to say that in times of ignorance, God has overlooked your sins. But now, at this current time, he will judge you based on Christ. So he doesn't condemn them at first. He preaches about God based on their understanding. But then he reaches the point where he says, you know, you were ignorant before, but now that I've declared this truth, you must make a decision about Christ. You either give up your false gods and worship Christ, or you stay with these false gods and stand condemned. So what does that tell us about how we preach to atheists or people from other faiths? Well, we can come alongside them and we can speak to their current understanding of the world. We might be able to identify with a certain aspect of their faith and that's not an affirmation, that's not condoning their belief, but you can ask things about reincarnation, like approach the conversation and say, oh, you you think you're gonna be reincarnated? What do you think you'll be reincarnated as? Do you think you'll be a tiger or a bear? Do you think you'll be, uh, you have enough good karma to be reincarnated into something greater? Have you reached spiritual enlightenment yet? You can ask them about their faith, their current understanding of the world, and use that as a building block to share the gospel. So you don't condemn them at first, but once you share about Christ, you have to declare that he's the only way. And so they were ignorant before, but now they must reach a point where they make a decision. What do you do with Christ? You either accept him or reject him. And all these faiths, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about this, that there are basically three choices to make about Christ, that he was either a crazy man, delusional and misled, and lots of people followed this crazy dude, or he was a pathological liar and manipulative at best, or that he was the one true God and he meant what he said he meant, and that he did create the world in the beginning. He did come to die for our sins, that he did rise from the dead, and many witnesses saw that. Peter, James, John, the rest of the 12, 500 witnesses at one time saw his resurrection from the dead. So you either believe he's crazy, you believe he's a liar, or you believe he's the real deal, he's God. So why do we talk about this? Why do we need to know this kind of stuff? Jesus tells us in the Great Commission, I won't read the whole thing, but he says, I've given you authority on heaven and earth, and I command you to preach the gospel to all nations, tribes, and tongues, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have taught you to do. So that's the Great Commission. It's not a great suggestion, it's a great commission, a great command. We are issued to preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere, and tell them what Jesus says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father except through him. So I'll pray quick as the worship comes up. Um, just remember, guys, tonight is Awaken at 6.30, 7.30. It'd be amazing to see you all there. Come out and worship the one true God, the author of life. Also, I think 15 minutes after the service is the uh, annual business meeting. Is that correct? 15 minutes, come out. You can see how we spend our money on coffee and ministries and all that stuff. Um, 
be nice to see you all there. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've revealed through Christ. We thank you that you made a way where there was no way, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and you sent your Son to die on the cross, to live a perfect life in obedience to the Father. And that we can be saved not as a result of works, our own goodness, our own righteousness, our own merits, but we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, who conquered it all. And through him, he who started a good work in, in us will lead us to completion on the day's return. We put our faith in that, we put our hope in that, and in Jesus' name we all said, amen.